0: Good morning. Peace be with you. My name is Paul. Like Drew said, um, you're used to probably seeing me behind the keyboard there. uh, And I'm getting ready in the the next month or so to step into the church planting residency here at Sojourn. And it's uh, truly an honor to be with you this morning, to be preaching this text uh, to us. And as we say each Sunday, uh, we go, as Drew just said, we go to the scriptures every week because we believe it's there that the person and work of Christ are most clearly revealed. Um, and I trust that that is what's going to happen this morning. I trust and pray that the Lord, the Lord would reveal himself to us, um, in new and special ways, not through my words, but through his word. And so, um, the text before us this morning is Acts 10 verses 44 through 48. Uh, the subtitle in the ESV, which is the, um, the English translation of the Bible that we use, the subtitle is the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles. It's also been called the Pentecost of the Gentiles, um, And it's uh, a a text where the Holy Spirit does fall on these non-Jewish, that's what Gentile means, on these non-Jewish people, these non-Jewish new believers. Um, And my plan for this morning is to give you uh, a bit of an extended context. Uh, This is the last sermon in our series through the first half of the book of Acts called Kingdom Expansion. So I'll give you a little bit of a context there, then we'll look into our text, and then I'll close uh, with a word of prayer. So let's get started. The book of Acts is the second of the two books in the Bible uh, written by the Apostle Luke. Um, Most Bible scholars uh, treat Luke and Acts as two parts of the same volume. Um, The Gospel of Luke is uh, the story of Jesus' life, his ministry, uh, his death and resurrection. And then the book of Acts is the story of the lives of the apostles, the ministry journeys that resulted directly from Jesus' last words, of his ministry, last words before his ascension, he said, go and make disciples of all nations. Uh, And the book of Acts really is uh, a book where we see that we're not waiting to see whether this great commission of Jesus to go and make disciples. We're not waiting to see whether that would happen. We're seeing it come about immediately as the apostles interpreted Jesus' words. Um, And the reason I say that is because often when we think of Christ's victory uh, on the cross, uh, the easy part for us to understand is the fact that there is coming a day when he will, his ultimate victory will happen. There is coming a day when he will come back and restore all things. And that's the day, uh, that fearful and wonderful day when the kingdom of, of heaven, the heavens and the earth will be shaped and only what is good uh, and perfect will remain. It's easy to think of that part. Uh, and that's, that's a beautiful truth, but it's only part of the truth. Um, you see, without the book of Acts, uh, if we only think about what Christ will do when he returns, uh, then we might misunderstand life now as just a life of, of patiently waiting and doing nothing. But Christ didn't intend for us to sit on our hands. Uh, He taught us to pray, Lord, your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. He didn't commission us to build bunkers to rest in. He entrusted us uh, to us a ministry of reconciliation. He didn't say, you're the stubborn rocks of the world. He said in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. So let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. So Jesus sent us on a mission to be the light of the world, That we might see his kingdom expand now, and that each victory that we witness would be a partial, beautiful foretaste of that ultimate day uh, when he will return uh, and make all things new. So, understanding this, that God's kingdom is expanding now, um, has been our hope through this series, uh, through the first half of the book of Acts. We looked at uh, on Easter the text. The verses 34 through 43 that Drew just read to give us some context, that was a sermon text for Easter Sunday. We looked at the resurrection of Christ, uh, and then we looked at how uh, the kingdom of God expanded through the first, cha- the first few chapters. And this week, uh, we're going to look at how the kingdom of God was expanded by hearing, as we read in Acts 10. Um, and as I begin, I want to give an illustration of attention that I've seen, and that I'm sure all of us have seen uh, in the world around us. As people, we are naturally intolerant. We're right or wrong people. Uh, In each of our eyes, there is a right way of understanding the world, and there are a lot of wrong ways. Um, And I believe that there's no exception to this. Let me explain briefly. Uh, Atheists think that there's no God and think that whoever believes in God is wrong. Uh, Theists, those who believe in God, think that those who don't believe in God are wrong. And even within those who believe in God, there's all kinds of religions, and each religion, including Christianity, thinks that theirs is the right one. And there are those within any of these worldviews, though, uh, who might consider themselves universalists, um, who say that your faith is your own business, and you might be thinking, uh, you know, hey, that's not true, I'm not uh, intolerant of other worldviews, but these people really are too. Um, Here's a quote summarizing that viewpoint. There are hundreds of paths up the mountain, all leading in the same direction, so it doesn't matter which path you take. The only one wasting time is the one who runs around and around on the mountain, telling everyone that his or her path is wrong. You see, this person believes that it's okay if you choose atheism, Christianity, Buddhism, uh, Islam, any of the the world religions. This person believes that's okay because they each kind of give someone the same thing, right? Uh, There's many paths up the mountain. They all arrive at the top. Um, And this person's okay with a Christian or a Muslim so long as that Christian or Muslim just sees their way of seeing the world as but one way. Because as soon as that person starts insisting that their way is the way, they become wrong. So we're naturally intolerant. Uh, even the tolerance movement of today, uh, the one that says just tolerate people, uh, no matter how different they are is a worldview. There is a right and wrong, um, tolerate tolerant people don't tolerate intolerant people. And if you look at what this leads to, um, I'd argue that the tolerance movement, which really is a name that I'm giving it, but it's really, um, I think birthed out of a good desire to, to see people accept and live in harmony with everyone. Uh, while it's founded out of a good desire, it just doesn't work. Um, If you don't believe me, spend some time uh, online reading through comment streams. Um, Actually, believe me, please don't read through online comment streams unless you just like being angry. Um, You see, acceptance and harmony can't be based on tolerance. Um, It's based on love. Tolerance is, by definition, a negative thing. It says, how much can you take before you can't take anymore? Love, on the other hand, is a positive thing. It's uh, ever-growing, ever-increasing. I don't want to be tolerated. I want to be loved. And love disciplines. Love cares about what is true and what is right. Trying to pin uh, pin love on anything other than absolute truth uh, is kind of like pinning the tail on a moving donkey. Um, kind of like building a house on the sand rather than on solid rock. Uh, but for some reason we're in the age uh, we're in an age where the idea of truth is something that we've been taught to be uncomfortable with. We don't even like the word anymore. Instead of calling things true, we call them facts. And there's no such thing as a moral fact. That's just an opinion. And there's all kinds of objections to truth. Um, some people say uh, that you're bound within your own minds. It's called subjectivism. You're bound within your own mind, and what's true for you, you can know, but you can't know what's true for someone else in their mind. Um, other people might say, I, just, I feel like I should be allowed to do this, and I don't, I don't need you to tell me that this is wrong. Kids are really good at that. Um, so are adults. I've seen, or you might, might say, uh, I've seen other people get hurt by someone telling them what to or what not to do, and so therefore telling someone what to do is, is wrong. Uh, and listen, I understand every one of those objections. I've personally made each one of those objections to truth. Um, I've said I can know what's right for me, but I can't possibly know for sure, for, you know, certainly what's true for you. I've said I'm doing this and I don't want you to tell me that it's wrong because I feel like it's right. And I've seen people, I've been hurt. I've seen my family, my close friends, hurt by people who abuse authority and lord it over other people. I've made every one of those, of those objections and I understand them, but let me implore with you that there is such a thing as truth. Um, there is something better than tolerance. You see, I think we're naturally intolerant by God's design. And here's the problem. As Christians, as Christians, We believe that Adam and Eve uh, were created good, all things were created good, but when they committed the first sin in the Garden of Eden, uh, creation broke in what we call the fall. Mankind fell from grace, came under the curse of sin and death, and all of creation, therefore, while it was once in harmony, is now and has ever been since the fall groaning for restoration, groaning for the day of Christ's return when all things will be made new. See, the fall has affected everything, including our understanding of worldview. Before the fall, there was one worldview. Now there are many. And each is exclusive. And I believe that our desire for right and wrong points to the fact that there is a right and a wrong. But as many words as we can try to string together and talk about the truth, the overarching problem that each of us faces because of the fall is that we can't see the truth. Not one of us is capable of understanding the truth, the ultimate truth, in and of ourselves. The only way now to see the truth is if God himself breaks in and reveals it to us. And that, that is what our text is about this morning. Um, it's about the Spirit breaking in to bring truth and meaning to people's lives, revealing truth to both believers and non-believers in a way that cut to the hearts of all those present at the time. And I pray that it would cut to our hearts this morning. And as I start, I want to give a brief aside um, to those of us who call ourselves Christians. Um, I want to give a brief aside out of Revelation chapter 2. This is God's words to the church at Ephesus, uh, which was a healthy, it was a big, healthy Uh, church, early church. um, And this is what God says to this church. He says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. So he gives this this church a word of encouragement. This church is a healthy church. But then God says this, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Remember the love that you had at first. So as we look back believers this text about new faith, about the immediate response of these believers to the work of the Spirit being poured out on them, let's lean in. Remember your baptism. Remember that moment when God broke in and revealed the truth to you and your response of worship and adoration. And for those in the room who wouldn't consider yourselves Christians, if you're in here, if you're if you have doubts, if you're skeptical, um, if you're just kind of figuring out what the church is about, then I hope that this room would be uh, a comfortable place for you. I hope that you would be uh, feel welcome here in our parishes in lunch after this, this gathering um, and that you would feel comfortable asking your questions because we want to walk through those with you. Um, each of us in this room was once in your seat, myself included, uh, so you're in good company. and We're glad that you're here. With that, let's dive into our text, Acts chapter 10. Um, and I've really got one point. Um, don't worry, I've got three sub-points. I've preached before once. Um, But yes, uh, well, I'll break this into three sections. There's really one thing that I want us to walk away with this morning. I want us to walk away knowing that the Holy Spirit works through God's word. The Holy Spirit works through God's word. Uh, And the text walks us through these three ideas. The Holy Spirit interrupts Peter. This interruption is what saves. And this salvation leads to sanctification. And those are words that we'll talk about as we go along. But let's start in point one. Uh, Starting in verse 44, it says this, While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. So Peter was saying something to some people. And so let's look real quick um, at the context within which Peter is preaching. In Acts 10, we're introduced to a man named Cornelius um, at the beginning of chapter 10. Uh, He's a centurion, which meant he was uh, an officer in the Roman army. He was in charge of 200 to 1,000 infantry soldiers. He was a Gentile, a Roman Gentile. He wasn't a Jew. He was aware of Jewish law from what we can see in the text, but he wasn't a a Christian or a Jew. But we are told in verse 2 that Cornelius was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. So Cornelius wasn't a believer, so to speak, uh, but he knew that something was missing, and he was praying that God would reveal himself. And in one of his prayers, God appeared to him in a vision to tell him that his prayers had been heard, and that he should send for a man, uh, this man named Peter. He didn't know Peter, but uh, he did send men for this man named Peter. Uh, at the same time, Peter was traveling uh, on one of his ministry journeys. He was between cities where he was preaching the gospel, uh, and he was a given, given a vision himself. In this vision, God showed Peter a field full of animals and told him to kill and eat. Peter said, by no means, Lord. You see, Peter was a devout Jew. He had been raised uh, under the Old Covenant, under the Old Testament law, and he was very concerned, the Jewish people were very concerned with the cleanliness of the food that they ate. Um, And so Peter said, by no means, Lord, but God's response to Peter was this in verse 15. God's response was, what God has made clean, do not call common. That might seem like a rabbit trail, but I'll come back to that in just a moment. See, after this vision, there was a knock on the door, and Peter was told by the Spirit to rise, go down, accompany these men, for I have sent them. And so Peter went with these men who Cornelius had sent. He was brought before Cornelius. Uh, and uh, and Cornelius' first words are, are this He says in verse 33, We are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Um, and so we see that these people were gathered together by God's direction. The Holy Spirit had already been doing work in their lives, uh, opening their deaf ears, their blind eyes, preparing them for this moment. And that is who is, is here before Peter, who he is preaching this gospel to. So, what was Peter saying? Um, Drew read the sermon uh, that Peter gave from verses thirty-four through forty-three. And the ascent and so I won't read it again, but the essence of his sermon uh, opens with this: Peter says, "Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality." And then he talks about Christ, who Christ is, and then he ends with this. I'll read verses forty-two through forty-three. And he, this is Peter talking. And he, Jesus, commanded us, the witnesses, to his resurrection. So Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And then, bam, the Holy Spirit interrupts. Verse 44, whilst Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And let me make a couple of observations here. First, The Holy Spirit fell while Peter was still saying these things. Peter didn't preach down the Spirit. Sometimes we look at gifted preachers and we say, man, that guy brings the Spirit. But we can look here. Peter didn't have, Peter wasn't preaching a sermon and then he didn't, you know, tie up his whole beautiful system of thought and then say, all right, cue Holy Spirit. Um, It says while Peter was still saying these things, the Spirit interrupted him. And think about this. As Peter's preaching to these people, he mentions Jesus' name, the name that holds great power as Taylor preached to us a few few weeks ago. The, the name that holds great power, and then all of a sudden, all other names fade away. Peter, Peter preaches about the works of Christ, and all the works of men fade away. As one commentator put it, human righteousness disappears in the deep sea that is the infinite love of God. And at that moment, the Spirit is poured out on the hearers of the Word. And put yourself in Peter's shoes for a moment. From his perspective, he's probably looking at people he's talking to have you guys ever been uh, listening to someone talking and you realize you're looking at them, but you're no longer listening to them? So yes, I'm doing that right now. Until <laughs> you called me out. I pray that it's the Spirit working. Um, uh, in that case, I'll just sit down. But, um, but no, Peter was interrupted by the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Spirit broke in. Uh, he was already working in Peter through his words. And then he basically said to Peter, all right, I got it from here. Second observation uh, second part, the, the last part of verse 44, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And so we see that hearing the word is necessary. When Luke records it here, he doesn't say the Holy Spirit fell on all who were around. He says the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. The Apostle Paul makes this abundantly clear in Romans 10, verse 14. He says this, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? And how can they hear Without someone preaching to them. So Paul says this. Luke records that the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, because Peter needed to preach Christ, not just a message of love and feel goodness, but but the the real Christ, the man, the God who became man, who lived the life that none of us could live, who was brutally murdered for our sin, and it's his blood washing over us that makes us clean. So Peter needed to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we see this done, as we see Peter obedient to the call of the apostles to guard the the, the deposit that's been entrusted to them, go and make disciples by preaching it. As we see Peter's obedience, we see God's faithfulness in meeting Peter in his obedience. Oh, that we too would preach the word of Christ with such faith and boldness and trust that the Lord will make good on his promise that he will be faithful. And then third, uh, third observation here, look at verse 45. It says this, And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Observation here is that God never ceases to amaze us, particularly with respect to who he accepts into his kingdom. The reason I shared the context of Peter's vision a couple of minutes ago, where God showed him that what God has made clean do not call common, was to say this, God had to demonstrate to Peter through a vision just how radically inclusive his kingdom was. See, look at uh, Peter's first words to Cornelius and his family were this, you know it's unlawful for me to associate with you, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So you know I really shouldn't be talking to you, but I'm talking to you anyway. right? That's what Peter's first words were um, and, and let's park on this for just a minute because this is a really big deal for Peter. You see, you see, he was raised up in the Jewish law. He was raised up in the scriptures, and there was huge significance to being a Jew, the heritage of the Jews. These people were people who had been through hundreds of years of slavery, starvation, um, pain, and suffering, and God had promised them deliverance since so they lived in eager expectation of this deliverance, and that bonded them together as a people. So, To have heard that your reward was also going to be accessible to the Gentiles? I can't imagine how offensive that would have been. Think about this. Let me illustrate this further. Think about our country's history with slavery, the African-American slave trade. I want to choose my words carefully here, but I couldn't think of a better analogy. Uh, Think about knowing that your family has been in slavery for hundreds of years. And the moment that you get free, you walk down the road and hear some rich white guys singing a slave song. How would that make you feel? This song of hope, this song of identity, um, which this person was singing who has no idea what it even means. I can't even imagine how offensive that would have been. And that's probably something like what it was for Peter and these Jews to hear that their birthright, their promised deliverance was accessible even to these Gentiles. You'd expect a gut reaction of anger, but that wasn't the reaction because Peter had had been taught to be impartial. God taught him, and listen to this, all of what God taught him led up to verse 47 in our text. Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? God shows no partiality, and we too should show no partiality. But this is hard because we are so prone to lean on our own works for our justification. And when we, uh, when our works, when our lives, how we live our lives is what justifies us before God, it's really hard to treat other people uh, impartially. Because if you've spent years trying to be a good person, uh, and then this person walks in who's been drinking, smoking, sleeping with prostitutes, uh, addicted to drugs for the last 20 years, walks in once and hears the gospel, you'll probably have a hard time rushing down with them if your hope is in your good life. You'll probably have a hard time rushing them down and getting them baptized. If you've spent years trying to build up your career, and this young woman in her 30s who's been homeless for her whole adult life walks in and hears the gospel once, you'll probably have a hard time immediately inviting her into your family. If your hope is in the years that you've spent building up your marriage and raising up your kids in the fear of the Lord, and this man walks in with three, four, five broken marriages, kids all over the country in foster care because they've been neglected, and he hears the gospel once and is saved, you'll probably have a really hard time thinking that God sees him equally to you. See, doubting the salvation of others is toxic to the church. But that's what leaning on works does for us. The devil loves it um, because it divides us. But the good news, though, is that when God demonstrates his power in our lives and roots our identity in Christ, we get to be just like Peter. We get to celebrate the baptism of new believers on the basis of God's work, Christ's work alone. We get to celebrate that he who was once dead has been raised to life. Which brings me to the second point. This interruption is what saves. You see, while Peter is preaching, God takes control of the situation. It's God's interruption, the work of the Spirit that saves people. We've seen that God works through the word that's been preached, but ultimately it's the Holy Spirit that saves and that confirms this salvation. Let's read together, starting in verse 45. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So what Peter and the disciples with him saw was a visible demonstration of the Spirit being poured out on the Gentiles. they see them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And as a result, Peter declares that they must have received the Holy Spirit and they must be baptized. Now, there's a lot about baptism that I don't have time to go into right now, but I'll say this. Baptism, which is the sacrament that God gave us to celebrate and mark entrance into God's covenant community, is given as a demonstration and a proclamation of the work of God. Baptism into the covenant community is something that God does, and it's something that we affirm. In our text, Peter takes the miracle of these Gentiles speaking in tongues as a sure sign that they've received the Holy Spirit. We see the miracle of tongues happening several times in the New Testament. While speaking in tongues is not the only way of knowing whether one has received the Holy Spirit, it's one listed um, in 1 Corinthians 12 uh, that Paul lists among many other gifts. But it's the, it's the miracle that God chooses here. It's the gift that God uses here in Acts 10 to make it abundantly clear to Peter and his followers that the Holy Spirit had fallen on the Gentiles, that this gospel of salvation through Christ was accessible also to the Gentiles. And so we also look for fruit of the Spirit in people's lives. We're called to do that. Uh, Because when we baptize people, we share in the sacrament of baptism and we are affirming the presence of the Spirit depending on the work of Christ. But the moment we start thinking that we're the ones who baptize, baptism is a sign of our works, this doubt inevitably enters in because when works are concerned, there's always the question of whether whatever work we did was good enough. And that's not what what God calls us to. God calls us to live lives of assurance, peace, and security. He says uh, uh, in in the book of Hebrews, it says that Jesus is the sure and steadfast anchor of our souls. Not the anchor that we drop and pick up and make sure that it's, it's, it's on right and we have to replace it. Jesus placed the anchor and Jesus fastened us to it. He is the steadfast anchor of our souls. You see, if your salvation is simply captured in praying a prayer, you say, yes, I've accepted Christ into my life, and that's the extent of it, then next year, five years down the road, you'll probably think, man, did I really mean that? And you'll doubt. If your salvation is simply captured in the sacrament of baptism and getting dunked into the water by the pastor, the same thing, five years down the road, 10 years down the road, you might look back and think, man, I should probably be rebaptized because I didn't really know what I was doing back then. But listen, you didn't know what you were doing back then, and you don't know now. God is unknowable, Salvation has always been his to understand and to complete. But don't, don't mishear me. Your first prayer of faith when you accept Christ into your life is crucial. Water baptism is crucial. But the prayer and the baptism are works of worship, not works of salvation. They are responses to God's work of salvation as they were here in Acts 10. See, God pours out and bears the fruit and we take it as encouragement and faith. And there is where we see baptism as a sign that through Christ you have been made clean. It's not you washing yourself. It's a sign that God has made you clean. Once you've been baptized into the covenant community by God, you are now clean. You are not a sinner. That's not your identity. You're now clean. You will sin, sure. But that does not define you anymore. You need to confess your sin. You must confess your sins. But you confess with faith hope and trust in the finished work of Christ because you have been made new. The Bible doesn't say one day you will be made new. It says he who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. So God saves you and you lean into Christ's finished work by the helping power of the Holy Spirit. It brings me to point three. I want to make two last observations from the text and show that the salvation of these Gentiles led directly to their sanctification, uh, which really is a word that means, that refers to the process by which God continues the work of making Christians holy throughout their lives. Uh, So in our text, we see sanctification happen through worship and teaching specifically. So uh, let's look at verse 46. It says, For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Extolling might be a new or vague word for you, but the word uh, also means praising, glorifying, exalting, magnifying. We see the first response to salvation here, praise and worship glorifying God in heaven for who he is and what he's done. See, this response is the first response here, and I think this is the first response that Revelation 2, God points the the church at Ephesus back to. He points them back to this first moment when he says, remember the love that you had at first. Remember remember those works that you did, that worship that you did? You loved me and you loved your neighbors? Get back to there. Paul says this in Romans 12, uh, verse 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You've been made holy and acceptable to God by the mercies of God. So worship him. And this, this is how God keeps your life in perspective with him on the throne. This is how you let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. And it's after seeing them, It's after seeing them worshiping that Peter, in obedience to Christ's command, does not delay. And in verse 48, commands them to be baptized. And finally, at the very end of our text, after Peter uh, commands them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, Luke records this. Luke says, then they asked him to remain for some days. You see, when the new Gentile believers were saved, they celebrated with one another in worship. They were baptized, and then they asked the apostle Peter to stay with them to teach them. This is the natural spirit-led response. Stay with us so that we can pick your brain. In our context, it might look like, man, I'm coming back to this church on Sunday. I'm coming back to that parish gathering next week. Oh, my, you're the friend who shared it with you or the stranger who shared the gospel with you, give me your phone number. I want to pick your brain. I need to know more about Christ. Um, see, they knew they needed teaching and encouragement. They knew that salvation was from something and also to something. We're saved to a life of joyful worship and endurance. Because Jesus has not returned yet. They didn't see Christianity just as the thing that you do on Sunday. Uh, They knew that following Christ was something that they were going to be working out for the rest of their lives. And um, this is what, according to Ephesians 4, God gave to the leaders of the church. Look at Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 13. It says this, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. For the building up of the body of Christ until we attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So there's a lot of clauses in that verse, but essentially Paul is saying this. God gave you leaders to teach you how to worship him and how to live lives of worship and ministry. This equipping by the power of the Holy Spirit, is what God intended us to be sustained by. This is why when we read Jesus say to his followers in Matthew chapter 10 that life is about to get real hard and whoever endures to the end will be saved, this is why that doesn't alarm us. Whoever endures to the end will be saved. Listen, no one, no man or woman can endure to the end on his or her own strength. And that's why the Pentecost of the Gentiles is so important. The disciples knew that without the Holy Spirit, they'd be lost. That's why in Acts chapter uh, 2, the apostles and the rest of the disciples locked themselves in the upper room when Jesus ascended, waiting for the Holy Spirit. And it was only when the Holy Spirit came that they embarked on their missionary journeys. That's why in Acts chapter 10 here, Peter sees the presence of the Holy Spirit and takes that as evidence that these believers have been saved, and therefore that they will be sustained by the Lord, that they will be able to press on and endure to the end. As the writer to the Hebrew puts it, We are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Because by the power of the Spirit, we have been fastened to Christ, who is the steadfast anchor of our souls. So, as I close, we've looked at how the Spirit regenerates us, how it interrupts our lives. The Holy Spirit saves us and ultimately sanctifies us. So, what do we do with this text? Let it challenge us in our partiality, not in a way that guilts us for our prejudicial uh, nature, but in a way that teaches us the character of God so that we might be able to rejoice with him in new life in Christ. Let it encourage us to preach the gospel of Jesus of of Nazareth boldly, with faith, trusting that the word of God will not return void because he won't let it. Preaching the gospel, it does not matter. Your words don't matter times when I've preached the gospel, I've, when I've looked back and thought, did I preach the gospel to that person? They said, man, you just preached the gospel to me. That was that conversation? <laughs> it's not your words. Sometimes you'll think that you're fumbling, but the word of Christ will not return void because he won't let it. The Spirit works through the Spirit's words. And finally, let us receive the gospel with faith in God, trusting that we won't have to understand it ourselves, that he will make known to us. The truth. He will demonstrate his power to us. And that is how we will know. I'm speaking to everyone in the room here. My job is not to light a fire in our hearts. God does that. My job is to fan the flame, to encourage you to press in and either pray like Cornelius that God would reveal himself or pray with boldness, trusting that he will reapply the gospel to us and bring us back to our first love for him. See, there's an immediacy. To this experiential knowledge of God. It turns advocates for Christ into witnesses of what they've seen and heard. So let's lean in. See, the beauty is that we're all a bunch of individual fires, but we get to come together and watch our individual fires ignite together in the one fire that is the Holy Spirit of the living God, and we get to see God's kingdom expand for his glory and for our good. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.